It's a verse in the Old Testament that over many years has haunted me a bit. And it haunts me in one of those good ways. It's one of the ways that, you know, make you think thoughtfully, but it, it kind of presses in on me and makes me think about my faith in a different way. Oddly enough, it comes from the book of Job. And I don't know if you've read the book of Job before. You might know a little bit about the story. Job goes through an experience in his life where his, his whole world is just decimated. It, it seems when you read the passages that open the book of Job that it happens in the context of, a, of some sort of cosmic wager between God and Satan. And Job ends up in a place where he has lost everything. And of course, early in the story, Job maintains his faith. He has a strong heart. He, he says, you know, I, I will worship God no matter what happens in my life. But over the course of several chapters, some uh, bad advice from some friends and some chiding from a few others, Job finds him in a place where he begins to, well, he becomes a little bit indignant. He gets to a place where he begins to believe that what has happened to him is unjust and unfair. And, and so he begins asking for a day in court with God. And he does. He kind of says, well, I think I should have this. And then he begins to demand it. And finally, he just all out says, this is, this is owed to me. This is due to me. And of course, he gets his wish. He has some conversations with God. They're powerful. They're incredibly illuminating. And you ought to read for yourself. The, the story is poetic. It's, it's, it, it take you places in your faith maybe that you haven't been before. And then after this altercation with God, his day in court, Job, in all humility and in deep, deep contrite, he's rethinking his his faith, his understanding of God, and, and it says this in the book of Job. It says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. So it's a great verse. And the, the, that verse in and of itself is the one that haunts me, but it's not even this translation that has sort of burrowed deep into my mind and my heart when it comes to faith. And Job is saying, and I'll show you the translation in a minute that, that really uh, rocks me a bit. Job is saying this, I thought I knew you. I thought I knew you. But now I know you. And I wonder if you've had that experience in your faith. I wonder if you've come to a place like that. Uh, the translation that has really um, kind of hit me between the eyes is this. In the past, I knew, it's the same verse, just a completely different uh, wording of it. In the past, I knew only what others had told me, but now I have seen you with my, what? With my own eyes. I don't know if you have come to this place multiple times in your faith or not, but for me, in my walk with God, which started when I was pretty little, there had been moments when what I thought I knew about God was taken apart in front of me. And I began to realize that the God that I had believed in or constructed or um, that I thought I understood from Scripture, give you a book, chapter, verse, all kinds of things, began to sort of like a mist evaporate and a new understanding of God took place. And when that happens, something unique occurs to our hearts and our minds. And I think this is exactly what happened 
with Job when he says, I, I, I thought I knew you. I, I knew some things about you. At least I was sure of them. But now something else has taken place and I see you differently. Has that happened to you? If it hasn't happened to you at all, then probably a fresh encounter with God is due. That's my guess. And I would also say this, if it hasn't happened lately, then maybe another fresh encounter with God is due. Because the alternative to this happening, well, it would mean that you know God completely and perfectly and that you have, in essence, arrived. And that's not true of me. And I know some of you, I know it's not true of some of you. And I'm making guesses about the rest of you. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but your weather app is broken. How many of you, how many of you have noticed this? Your weather app is broken. Yeah. And how many of you notice this? It's pretty severe. You, and you, you, you count on your weather app for data, Right. You count on your weather app for good data because you know whether you need to bring an umbrella or not or whether you want to go out with a helmet on in Colorado this time of year. You, you count on it and you, you need it. Your weather app is utterly and completely broken. Here, this, this, here's an example. And I, I thought, let's just see what happens today. Okay, this is what I did. I, and I, it's happened every day for the last month if you've paid attention. Okay, here it is. This morning at 5.30 this morning, this was the forecast for the next 10 days, the Castle Rock 10-day forecast, okay? You see it? I mean, that's depressing. That's just, where did summer go? Where did summer go? And, and again, this is not unusual. This, this, this little dichotomy I'm about to show you has happened every day for the last month, at least. And so I, I watched it, paid attention. I think, man, 10 days, that's going to, we're building boats again, right? Somebody's got to build an ark. And then, uh, here's the forecast three hours later. <laughs> I'm not making that up. That's what happened. I just took screenshots on my phone. That's, how, that's the amount of research I did to show you this. And so you've noticed that the, your weather app, my weather app, all the weather apps are, are broken. So wh- why? Why is that the case? Well, in doing some research and trying to pay attention and dig on this a little bit, the only thing that appears to be the case is that, well, weather is predicted based on the past. That's how they predict weather. And so the past weather models, meteorological systems, they pay attention to what happened when and what was the temp when and where did it happen and where is it moving and where is the jet stream. All of those models that they have used to predict what happens in the next hour or, for goodness sakes, the next 10 days. I mean, you read this, it's ridiculous, right? You think, what happened in the last three hours that convinced them that Tuesday is going to be sunny instead of stormy? Not this Tuesday, a week from Tuesday. <laughs> it's utterly bonkers. All of the models are broken. Uh, climate change, uh, El, El Nino, lots of things are causing weather patterns to take different routes and shift in different ways And so they can tell you what's about to happen because it's happening, you know, in Sedalia or Franktown, but they can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day because all of the systems that they use, computer systems, to determine what's going to happen in coming days, predictions, meteorological models, they're broken because the past is not a good 
indicator of what's happening tomorrow. And so for some of you, me included, our understanding of God is built on a past model. It's built on things that you and I were taught by people who meant well but had an incomplete understanding of God. It's built on things that we have read that we read with a certain lens because that was the lens we were given, what others had told us. And our understanding of God has been in this box or this container and the walls need to be pushed out a bit. And when we do that, we can have an experience like Job. And an experience like Job means that we can say, I thought I knew you, but now I know you. This is the heart cry of most of the writings in the New Testament. You can see it many times. Paul just simply says this, I want to know God. That's what he says. In fact, he says it on his behalf. I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection. I want, to, I want to understand his suffering. He prays it a thousand different ways. And he also prays it in many of his letters in regards to us. He says, I want you to know God. And I know that you want that as well. Because if you were able to wrap up the course of your life and figure out that your understanding of God was off by this much or this much, you would want to go back in time and either love differently, act differently, behave differently, engage with others differently, spend your time differently if you understood the depth, the breadth, the importance of God's values, you would absolutely want to align your life and your heart with his because he made you, God created you, his image is on you. And you are drawn to using your life for good purposes to be his hands and his feet, to build his kingdom here. I want to know God. And this was the heart of Paul. It's the heart of the disciples. In fact, at one point during his ministry, it's near the very end, um, one of the disciples, his name happened to be Philip, he looked at Jesus and he says this, look, Lord just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. That's what he says to Jesus. Hey, look, if you could just, you know, knock off the parable business and, and, and quit, quit telling us confusing stories, just tell us plainly. And at one point, Jesus says, let me just tell you plainly. He says that as well. But at this point, Jesus is describing the cross and all the things that are going to happen. It's near the end of his ministry, John 14. And Philip just says, look, just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And that is our prayer as well. Jesus' answer is profound, though. Jesus says very plainly and very simply, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? And then say this part with me. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Paul calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. You've seen him. You've seen your creator. So if you wonder what God values, pay attention to what I do. If you wonder how God loves, pay attention to how I love. If you wonder what forgiveness looks like, watch what I do and how I interact. If you want to know God, pay attention to me. And so over and over and over again, Jesus knows this. He knows that we're tempted to constrain God to the idea of somebody that we know, similar to a person, if you will, that God is bigger than that, that God is so much bigger than an individual, but yet Jesus comes as the image of the invisible God, 
And so to help us over that hump of understanding, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Jesus over and over again gives us analogies. Uh, He gives us statements that give us characteristics of God or an understanding of how God relates to us or how God operates. In John, they're called the I am statements because Jesus would stand up and he would say, I am, and he follows it with this picture. And it's usually a picture that we understand. At one point he says, look, I, I am the living bread. And so he uses this staple that we consume and use for nourishment to say, that's who I am. You, you consume me. Uh, you, you are fed by me. You find sustenance in me. This is who Jesus says God is. And at one point, one of the analogies he used, much more applicable to first century Palestinian life than it is to our semi-urban, suburban life, Jesus says this, I am the what? It's a picture. It's a picture. If you want to know something about God, you can take this picture. And if you know something about shepherding or sheep or what it means to be good, then you understand something about God and his nature. And everybody that was listening to the words of Jesus when he says this, they are taken back immediately to their understanding of the Old Testament and their understanding of who God is. And they take this picture and they have echoing in their hearts and minds the words of an author, an author who wrote many of the songs in the Old Testament. The series we're in, the best songs of the Bible, it's, it's a mix of lyrics and music. And we said last week that some of you are lyrics people, and you all are, some of you raised your hands. Some of you all are music people, and, you know, there's a big gulf between us. But in the context of music, lyrics and notes come together in powerful ways that bring about emotional change in us. And you sang this morning with great gusto with Josh as he's in the team, they're leading us. Kelsey singing the words about the establishment of the church and the kingdom of God coming. And you are drawn to the deeper purpose of investing in whatever God is up to. And these analogies that were given in the New Testament and the song that this brings us back to, we understand something about God's nature. So my guess is, is that if you take who Jesus says he is and who he points to, God being, and if you allow Psalm 23 to inform your understanding of who God is, that you might, after some reflection, not this sermon, but after some reflection on your own, moments with God alone, on top of a mountain or down in a valley, or on a walk through a beautiful summer day, and you reflect on the words that David wrote long ago, that you might say, you know, I thought I knew God, but now I understand him differently. I thought he was, and you might insert any of the analogies that you were raised with that others told you about, but now I know that he is, and my guess is whatever you conclude, it will be something along the lines of far more loving than I imagined he would be. Psalm 23 is beautiful. Uh, how many of you have heard Psalm 23? Let me see your hands if you've heard Psalm 23. Uh, for many people, it's a favorite. And it is, uh, in the words of, of Josh and music lovers, a banger. 
And I don't really know what that means, except that uh, it slaps. I don't even know what that means. But I think it probably does both of those things. But I think we imagine Psalm 23 as a, you know, not a banger, nothing that slaps, but a lyrical, moving, emotional thing. But as we know, all songs that move us and change our hearts, uh, they fall under all those categories because they form us. And it begins just like Jesus. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The beginning of Psalm 23, he says this, say it with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I picked an older translation to use for Psalm 23 today because it's how some of us who are my age or older remember hearing it. And I remember as a kid hearing Psalm 23 and thinking, I don't want a shepherd either. That's what I thought. Because I thought that's what David was saying. The Lord is my shepherd, I don't want it. It sounds awful to me. Somebody in charge of me, somebody hit me with a crook. And then, of course, over time, I thought, why would we say that in church? That seems counterintuitive to say that in church. And then the heart of a child begins shaped and formed, and suddenly we learn, oh, I I get it now. It was probably when the new NIV came out, and they said it differently. But there's something about the older translation of Psalm 23 that can transport many of us back to a place where we first heard it, or where we begin to embrace and understand the concept of this shepherding and what it means, and that we long to be shepherded in meaningful ways. And by shepherded, we mean loved and loved well. Most of us, even those of us who grew up in and around good churches, good people, good parents, were raised by people and taught by people and mentored by people who have maybe a flawed understanding of faith. In other words, the people around us had not arrived as well. Much of our journey in following Jesus is learning how to unlearn some things that we once held true and dear or held as foundational to who we are, and all it takes is to embrace the depth and the truth, the identity of who Jesus is as the image of the invisible God described in the words of Scripture. And so, this is David's description of God. Psalm 23. And when he does this, it's the reason why David was called a person after God's own heart. Flawed? Absolutely. Like me, like you. But a heart that was shaped by God. And he had a desire. Well, it echoes Paul's prayers in the New Testament. My prayer for me and for you and probably your own prayer. Lord, I want to know you. I don't want to spend time majoring in minors or on fool's errands or with values that don't consist of who you are and the way you see the world. I want to know you. In David's heart, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And he goes on to say, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Let's read this next two couplets together. You ready? He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's a beautiful, incredible, pastoral picture of a pasture and a shepherd and a sheep. And of course, all of these analogies tie deeply into who Jesus says he is. God, the shepherd, leads us beside still waters. A moment in Jesus' ministry, he finds himself 
thirsty midday, his disciples have gone to get food, and Jesus is near a well, and there's a woman there who's come to gather her own water. And when she's come there to get her water, they end up in a conversation about her life, and he asks her for a drink, and in the middle of this conversation about her past and the judgment that any Jewish man would bring to her life, she doesn't find judgment, she finds love and mercy and grace and compassion, and he says to her, if you drink this water, you will be thirsty again. But if you drink the water I give you, you will live forever. I am the living water. And in this picture, I know Jesus has Psalm 23 in the back of his mind. And he begins to describe this. He restores my soul. And he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This Song and these lyrics paint a picture of somebody who walks daily in a unique way with God, an awareness of who God is, where He is, that He is with you, that He will never leave you, and that He doesn't need you to run about frantically trying to please this one or that one or your boss or your family, that you have a peace knowing that God's love is enough for you. That's how this psalm begins in the picture that is painted. The next part says this, even though I walk through the, what, valley of the shadow of death. There's been lots of debate about this and what it means and where is it and is it a real place or is it just a figurative place? Many theologians believe that this walk through the valley of the shadow of death actually exists there in the Jerusalem area. It's on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. That it would have been the very setting, the very place that Jesus used to tell his parable and the story of the Good Samaritan that fell into the hands of robbers. There's some places along this road that are very, very deep valleys. And everyone knows who is in a place where there could be harm or danger or those who would threat to rob or hurt, that a valley is a difficult place. Because when you're down in the valley, you don't have access to the higher ground. You have to make your way. There's crags where people can hide. This picture, the valley of the shadow of death represents the moments in your life when you begin to wonder, is God with me? Are we going to get through this? Maybe worse, are we going to get through this and be intact? Not as a family or with each other, but is my soul going to come through unmarred? Or am I going to have another thing to heal from or a difficulty that I didn't know was coming? And Jesus understands this as he's going to the cross. David understood it, for his life was fraught with difficulty and conflict. But then he says very clearly, for thou art, what? And thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Both do. So two different tools for the shepherd that you may be aware of. One for a bit of discipline, one for a bit of direction. One for a bit of encouragement, one for saving, and one for a little swift kick in the pants. And every now and then, God needs to give us a little bit of both. And as he does so, David paints that picture. There's another piece of the picture that he says. Let's read it together. Thou preparest a table before me. It's good to read in King James, isn't it? Remind you of what it was? It's not. It's the revised, the same thing. Let's start again. Let's stop. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. And my cup overflows. This has always confused me. I never understood this verse. And I'm not sure I do now. 
But the questions I have about it are many because I thought, you know, I, I like a dinner. I love a good dinner. And I love it when somebody has prepared a table before me. It's beautiful. It's amazing. I love a good spread. I like thinking about eating almost as much as I like eating. And so it's the anticipation of it. It's, you know, this is going to be good and enjoyable. But when I think about a table that's been prepared for me and a bunch of enemies are around me, I think I'm conflicted. I don't really want to eat. You know, I don't want to enjoy this. I don't understand why this is a good thing that God has done. I recently read a book written by an old shepherd born in Africa and did all kinds of uh, agricultural work, livestock work, and sheep work as a, uh, a sheepman, as he would call it. And when he reads Psalm 23, he has a different picture in mind. When he reads these verses and he says, when Jesus is trying to lay the groundwork for the disciples. He understands that they are going to be facing all kinds of issues. And then he reads the words of David. He has a different picture in mind completely. When he says, when David writes, thou preparest a table before me, this shepherd, he doesn't think of a a table like we have prepared today and the food that we'll eat, even communion or even a fellowship meal that you might have with people that you love. He pictures the table lands that exist in Palestine. Uh, Now, I don't know if you know the topography of the Holy Land, but there are many what we would call mesas. That's the Spanish word for it. But it is a a tableland. And many of the larger, longer, and wider tablelands in Palestine, they are beautiful pastures that exist at their own right. Not like the small mesas we have around here. They're pretty bare on top. But these tablelands are where many shepherds would desire to be coveted for the grazing of their sheep. And a good shepherd will scout out the best tablelands for his sheep. And what it means to prepare the tablelands would mean that he would go out early, ahead of his time to be the shepherd over these sheep, and he would prepare the land, and he would remove the poisonous weeds that are there that the sheep might eat and cause them harm and pain, maybe even death. He would find where the crags are and the dangerous ones that might cause them to break a limb or eventually lead to their demise. He would find places where the water that comes from the higher mountains finds its way onto the table mesa and gives them places to have, well, refreshing drink. And of course, all of this happens in the presence of the enemies of the sheep. They're always lurking. The food chain is active. And as the food chain is there, the shepherd understands it. And he sees where are the dangerous places. I'm going to lead them where they'll be safe and where I can be safe. And we can have good rest, good nourishment, good food, not poisonous weeds, good grass, and good water. So when he reads these verses, he imagines that God has gone before you. And he's put you in a place where you'll be safe. I know that you have pondered at times as you go through a day and you wonder what it is that you might be thankful for. That you and I, we have no idea what kinds of calamity God has saved us from. That we even have no idea that could have happened. It happens before us a time or two and then we stop. You've been at a stoplight next to the turn lane. You're distracted. You're thinking about other things. Somebody begins to turn and you hit the gas. And then you look up before a UPS truck almost sideswipes you. 
and you think, your heart stops. And you think, oh my gosh, I can't believe that almost happened. And if you're a praying person, you think, Lord, thank you. You you saved me. I can't believe that. Ah. And of course, if you ride with my wife, she'll remind you of the many times that you almost died (laughs) in the car. I'm kidding. So thou preparest a table before me, a table land. And only in that interpretation and that understanding does this make sense. And then it says this. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's say it together. You ready? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This week we lost a a dear friend uh, of our church. Uh, Cindy Veith's father passed away. And we've been praying for and, and hoping for and uh, Dan Bloomdahl for a long time. And if you know Cindy, you know she is a devoted, devoted daughter and uh, spends many hours driving back and forth to the north side of town and taking care of him and the whole family uh, deeply invested in that. He passed away on Tuesday. And so I I say that so you can pray for Cindy and and express some care. But over the last many years, um, her father has sent an email to the family every week. It's got a scripture in it and a few words from him. At some point in this last year, the scripture that he sent out to everyone was Psalm 23. And he wrote down a few thoughts about it and and Cindy has copied them down from her emails into a journal of hers and sheets so that she could remember them and have them handy. And this is what she wrote after he read Psalm 23 and pondering it. Another top favorite verse, he says, especially the first part, but I also like the last part, which means he likes the whole psalm is what that means. But then he says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And can you read it? And thereafter, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Life is good, but heaven will be what? Better. Better. Uh, Prophetic words, of course, he knows what he's facing. As he is going through his life, pondering the, the darkness, the valley of death, what that would be like. Mortality, the thing that we all face. But these words that are in this psalm deal with the, of course, the existential dread that we all face, but also the difficulty of loving people in the middle of brokenness and pain and struggle. But wrapped in all of that, David wants you to understand deeply that it's goodness and mercy that follows you. How many of the days of your life? Now, I know if you're anything like me, I could name a few days where I think God forgot to give me the dose of goodness and mercy that were due to me. And when I begin to take that posture, I find myself in the position of Job saying, you know, Lord, I I think when you're passing it out this morning, you you know, you, you miss me. And if I persist in that place, God will gently take me to the same reckoning that Job experienced. And he'll say, really? And he'll remind me 
of how his goodness and mercy has followed me all the days of my life. And eventually, I come to a place and say, oh, yeah, you're right. I thought I knew you, but now I feel like I know you more. And when Dan writes this, that life is good, but heaven will be better, he is describing an intimacy with God that we have yet to feel that will eventually come. Now, this, this word in the, in the verse, goodness and mercy, the second word, mercy, is a very unique Hebrew word. It's very hard to translate it into any language, but it is the word kesed. And this word is all through the Old Testament. It is a, a Hebrew word that means God's loyal, persistent, tangible, compassionate kindness. It's used when those that are part of the patriarch's family in Genesis turn their back on God and God continues to show his grace and mercy to them. It's used over and over again. It's used when Hosea is charged to show this kind of love to a wife that is wayward and disobedient and stubborn and goes her own way. It's used time and time again. And what it means is that God's love for you is bigger than you thought. It's deeper than you've ever dreamed or imagined. That your perception of God that comes with a sense of judgment doesn't belong to God. That God's chief defining characteristic of his character, his values, and his personality are wrapped up in this word, kased. It's used to describe the the provision that God brings in the Old Testament to the lives of Ruth and Naomi when they feel like all is lost, two widows abandoned by anybody providing, and God comes along to say, I am your provider, and I'll restore you, I'll give you what you need, and I'll take care of you. Kassed, it's God's loyal, persistent, tangible, compassionate love for you. And I know There are times when you feel like it's missing, but God gently, in his pictures, his descriptions, Jesus, the image of the invisible God, draws us back to this truth that he is with us, that he will never leave us. So I wonder if Psalm 23, this incredible song, one of the best songs in the Bible, if you allowed it to take deep root into your heart, even while we're taking communion in just a moment, This week, while you're on a walk, if you put on your audio Bible and just listen to it in a variety of translations, if you sat on your deck and just opened up your scripture and put everything else away and just said, Lord, I I don't know if I know you, but here's what I know I need. I need a fresh understanding of who you are and how you love, that God's spirit is so kind and so gentle and so persistent and so compassionate that he will meet you in that moment and help dismantle some of the things that have kept you an arm's length from him. And when he does, your prayer will be the same as Job's. Yeah, I thought I knew you, but now I really know you, and I want you to change me from the inside out.